This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have Liberty Ships, an episode of This Nation at War, as it aired over NBC on August 3rd, 1942. It focuses on the work being done in the stateside shipyards to arm the sailors of the U.S. Navy. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcast. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. This nation at war. again you are going to hear the living documentary story of the 130 millions of Americans who are making history. You are going to hear them at work amid authentic backgrounds in a series of direct on-the-spot broadcasts that will take us to Portland, Oregon, Long Island, New York, San Francisco, South Chicago, and Washington, D.C. This Nation at War is a regular feature of the Blue Network presented in cooperation with the National Association of Manufacturers. This is Jim Backus talking from New York City. Tonight, as our Russian ally battles the full strength of the Nazi war machines and speculation increases over a second Allied front, the eyes of the whole world fall upon America. Can we continue to transport men and material to the places needed, in the quantities needed, when it is needed? Do that means a bridge of ships. And so tonight, the fate of mankind for generations to come may well depend on the performance of one section of American industry, the shipbuilders. For the next 30 minutes, you are going to hear the story of this most critical of all jobs in this nation at war. You're going to hear it straight from the mouths of naval officers, plant managers, steel workers, welders, shipwrights, and sailors, the men who are doing the job. First to Washington, where Rear Admiral Emory S. Land chairman of the Maritime Commission will tell us something of the size of the job. As chairman of the Maritime Commission, Admiral Land, we look to you for some straight, cold facts from the gigantic task our country faces in merchant shipbuilding. The first straight, cold fact, Mr. Rice, is that we must build better than 800 ships this year and 1,500 next year. This is the biggest job American industry ever tackled. Mm -hmm. How in the world is it being done, Admiral? 
Several months ago, I testified before congressional committees to the effect that if productivity of labor could be increased 12.5% in 42, 25% in 43, the Maritime Commission would readily meet the President's Merchant Marine Shipbuilding Program in 42 and 43. There was, of course, our standard proviso, namely that the necessary steel be furnished to Maritime Commission. It gives me the greatest pleasure to say that not only has the productivity of labor increased to the percentages indicated, but as far as the past them. In the phraseology of the shipbuilding boys, we are going to town. Going to town all up and down the Atlantic coast, the Pacific coast, and the Gulf, right? More than that, Mr. Rice. The job is being done in practically every state in the Union. The actual shipyards are only a part of the building of a ship. American industrial management has done a remarkable job converting peacetime manufacturing into parts for our merchant fleet. Into the shipyards from all over the country roll trainloads of parts. And in the yards themselves, the time required to build a ship grows less and less. You emphasize speed, Admiral Land. We have to. Now, this year, next year, is when we need ships. Ships to carry troops, military equipment, heavy cargoes of tanks and artillery, millions of rounds of ammunition, heavy construction steel for railways and bridges. We must carry food, unnumbered tons of it, to our troops, to our allies. You see, Mr. Rice, why we of the Maritime Commission think and act and talk. Speed. Indeed I do, Admiral Land, which makes me wonder just how long it takes to build a ship these days. The answer to that question is proof that American ingenuity, American workers, and American management can do anything we ask when challenged the way this country is challenged today. In World War One, 10,000 ton ship required from 10 to 12 months to build. Last spring, with mass production methods, we were building 10,000 ton Liberty ships on an average of 156 days. Why, that's less than one half the time taken in World War One. At the present rate of progress, we expect to reach the average of 105 days by September. Only 105 days from the laying of the keel to the launching? No, from the laying of the keel to delivery which is quite a different thing. Uh, could you tell us the speed record, Admiral Land, in the building of a Liberty ship? 46 days. You mean 46 days, a month and a half after the keel was laid, a ship was all fitted and ready to go places? With 9,146 tons of cargo, yes, sir. Could you tell us where that record ship was built? It was built by the Oregon Shipbuilding Corporation, one of Mr. Henry Kaiser's yards. The owner of this yard and some of the other shipbuilders are now out to beat this record. They are predicting that they're going to build Liberty ships in 30 days. Honest now, Admiral, you don't really believe that, do you? Indeed I do. Why not? We are reaching the point where the members of the Maritime Commission will refuse to be surprised when some yard does build a Liberty ship for us in 30 days. Well, here is hoping. Oh, by the way, Admiral, can you tell us how many ships were completed in July? 71 ships of 790,300 deadweight tons. 52 of these were Liberty ships. I am happy to say. Thank you, Admiral Land. This nation at war. And now, out on the West Coast, thousands and thousands of men and women are at work on these ships that Admiral Land told us about. The ingenuity of American management coupled with the skill of American workers, is breaking all-time world records for speed and ship construction. Our next jump is to the shipbuilding yard Admiral Land mentioned, the Portland works of the Oregon Shipbuilding Corporation. 
Phil Irwin of station KEX is standing by in the yard of the Oregon Shipbuilding Corporation at Portland. By the time you count ten seconds, you will hear his voice. Under the far-seeing leadership of Henry J. Kaiser, over 35,000 employees of the Oregon Shipbuilding Corporation have combined skill, sweat, and high morale to establish a record for delivery of more Liberty ships than any other shipyard. When the keel for the very first ship was laid on May 19, 1941, Mr. Kaiser had never built a ship before, and over 90% of the employees had never worked in a shipyard before. That first Liberty ship, the Star of Oregon, was delivered to the government December 31st, 1941, 226 days after the keel was laid. In sharp contrast was the Thomas Bailey Aldrich, which on June 1st, 1942, required only 46 days from keel laying to delivery to set a new all-time high in wartime ship construction. But there was a definite need for trained workers before a world's record could be established. And the Oregon Shipbuilding Corporation answered this need with intensified vocational training and conducted in the yard itself. Classes covering every phase of ship construction were held for all employees desiring training to provide the fundamentals which are further developed by actual experience. Just what kind of people work in a shipyard? All kinds, men and women from every walk of life. And they are all here to do the job at hand the job which counts right now. As we move about the yard, we see these contrasting personalities all around us. For example, here's the pipe-fitting shop and the husky-looking gentleman hard at work. Your name, sir? Lewis Zannon. I'm lead man pipe-fitter for the yard. And what did you do before you came here, Mr. Zannon? Well, among other things, I was a member of Barnum and Bailey Circus. I doubled as strongman and fire eater. Uh, did you say fire eater? That's right. I entertained the circus fans by eating electric light globes, razor blades, and assorted hardware. But when war priorities came along, I had to change my diet. And your job, I see. Well, how do you like it here? It's a great privilege. This kind of work is right up my alley. And I feel really important in doing something for my country and those small lads across the water. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Zannon. Now, moving along to the plate shop, uh, we find another big fellow swinging a 32-pound sledge. If he'll lay it down for just a moment, perhaps he'll tell us his name. Gladly. I'm Jonathan D. Heaton, better known around here as Brother Jonathan. Brother Jonathan? Yes. I'm a member of the Mormon Church, and I spent four years in the mission field in Australia and New Zealand. And after that? Well, from religion to wrestling is quite a jump, but that's where I landed. Well, I've seen you wrestle in Portland... And I understand you helped sell war bonds by taking part in wrestling matches between local shipyards here. That's right. It's a lot of fun, and I'm glad to be doing my part in every way I can. Keep up the good work, Brother Jonathan. Now over here is pipe fitter number 13,505. But to the world, he's better known as Alexander Umansky, internationally famous ballet master. You were born in Russia, Mr. Umansky. Yes, 47 years ago. I came to America at the age of 13, and I've been in Bollywood for 35 years, except for the time I served in World War No. 1. Well, aren't you rather out of your element working here? Some people may, might think so, but I love it here, and then I still teach ballet in my spare time, 
And I have a 15-year-old daughter, Valentina, who's a coming ballet star. And I can see you swell with pride when you say that, and justly so. Tell me, wasn't it pretty much of a sacrifice to give up the work you love and to become a pipe fitter? America has been very good to me. I owe it more than I can repay. I'm quite happy here doing all I can to help. I feel inspired and useful because, in the end, all this will mean liberty and freedom for the people. Freedom, too, for not just one art form, but for all the cultural and artistic forms which make for a better world in which to live. I can add no more to that, Mr. Romansky. And now, what of women workers? For information on that score, let's turn to one of the first women welders, Mrs. Mary Carroll. How long have you been working at the Oregon shipyards, Mrs. Carroll? Since April. I was formerly employed as a stenographer. However, the first of last year, I began to notice the urgent need for war workers, and I wanted to do my part. And why did you select welding, Mrs. Carroll? Because welders seemed to be first in demand. I took a 200-hour course and went to work at once. A very patriotic gesture, Mrs. Carroll, helping out in the war effort like that. The women have a very important job to do in this war, perhaps as important as the men. However, I hasten to add that the women with families to care for are doing just as big a job by standing by and keeping the American home. And have you a family, Mrs. Carroll? Yes, four children, one girl and three boys. What are their ages? Uh, the girl is 18, the boys are 14 and 12. Well, now, that's only two sons. Uh, what are the other ones? The oldest son, Richard, was in the Philippines at the outbreak of the war and was one of the men who saw service with MacArthur on Bataan. And if I might ask, when was the last time you heard from him, Mrs. Carroll? His last letter reached me in March. That is just one of the reasons I prefer to do my part here in the shipyard. By working and learning, by helping in every way I can to build these ships, by contributing my own work to this all-out effort, I feel that I am doing, at least to some degree, what the boys over there are doing so wholeheartedly. And it is a satisfaction, a truly proud feeling deep down inside, to know that I'm helping to speed the day when they'll all come back home. Thank you, Mrs. Carroll. From Portland, Oregon, you've heard the men and women who are breaking world records to send our merchant fleet to sea in time for victory. But you must remember the job doesn't begin here. The construction of these ships really begins in factories and mills hundreds and thousands of miles from the coast. The big engines that drive these ships come from many different factories. And unless the supply of these power plants keeps the pace with the speed of the shipbuilders, we'd have ships that couldn't move. Well, we're getting these engines, and we're getting them on time. So let's find out how they're doing that part of the job. Bill Baldwin of the Blue Network Station in San Francisco is standing by at the Joshua Hendy Ironworks in Sunnyvale, California, waiting to tell us that part of our story. Come in, Bill Baldwin. Hello, America. This is Bill Baldwin of Station KGO in San Francisco reporting the story of a miracle of American war production. Our Blue Network microphones are set up at the end of the long final assembly line of the Joshua Hendy Iron Works near Sunnyvale, California, where monster 274,000-pound steam engines, two stories in height, are being assembled and tested before being placed in the engine room of Liberty ships of America's great new Merchant Marine. To give you some idea of what is going on here at the Hendy Works, let me tell you that this plant has been in operation since 1856, but that in 1942, three times the manufactured material will be turned out here as in all of the other 86 years combined. 
A little over a year ago, this plant was an antiquated, obsolete factory, employing about 60 men in receivership, and with little more than goodwill and a pear orchard owned by the company to recommend it. Today, the pear orchard is gone. Its crop sold for $1,100, and the first profit entry on the books of this new company, incidentally. But the goodwill has increased many, many times. Today, Hendy covers a 60-acre track, employs over 3,000 men, and is turning out marine engines at a rate which has already earned the coveted Maritime Commission M for outstanding production. In another 60 days, there will be 4,200 men and women on the payroll, and by the end of next year, 8 million tons of Allied shipping will be propelled by Hendy-made engines, just like the one towering over our heads at this moment. Factors which have made this production possible may be boiled down to two. American mass production method, plus American will to tackle the impossible and lick it. And now, let's find out something firsthand about this plant and the men who are turning out these engines. Here's a gentleman working in the machine right here. Uh, what is your name, sir, and your job here at Handy? Bert Veal, and I'm a machine specialist. And how long have you been doing this work? I was a tool man in shipyards during the last war, but I've been a professional musician since then, until I came to Handy in June 1941, when the call went out for skilled machinists. Well, you mean that you played in orchestras, Mr. Veal? Yes, I played trumpet in many well-known bands. Well, I don't suppose you find much use for your music around here. Oh, yes, indeed I do. You see, we have a 42-piece band here at the plant, which plays for the men during lunch hours and at special gatherings. I lead the band. Oh, I see. Well, that's a long jump from band work to shipbuilding. Oh, not so much. The hum of machinery here at Henley turning out these great engines is real music. It certainly is, and thank you, Bert Veal. And now over here is another gentleman who looks as if he might be able to tell us something. Your name, sir? Peter McCain. And how old are you, Mr. McCain? 75 years young and still going strong. Ah, <laughs> fine. How long have you been a machinist, Mr. McCain? 56 years. 19 of them here at Henders. Well, you must have worked on a lot of ships in that time. I sure have, and one of them was mighty famous, too. The old battleship Oregon, a great ship. Uh, you're right about that, Mr. McCain. What is your job here now? Lays machinists, making crankshafts for the engines. Well, I understand that you're not only the oldest man on the job here, but also one of the most respected because of your skill, Mr. McCain. You are training younger men, too, aren't you? That's right, and I am proud to say that right now, I have three young fellas who have become full-fledged machinists working right alongside me. Well, how long does it take on the average to train these new men? It all depends on the lad's willingness and the machine he's working on. But I'd say about a year on the average. When I was a boy, it took about five years because most of the work was done by hand. And thank you, Peter McCain, 75 years young. Keep up the good work. And now here's another gentleman. What is your name, sir? Charles E. Moore. And your job here at Handy, Mr. Moore? President and general manager. Well, I certainly came to the right man for information. How long have you been building engines, Mr. Moore? Just since we took over this plant and put it into operation on a production line basis a little over a year ago. Well, that's a new way to build these monster engines, isn't it? It had never been done before, but the demand for such a huge number of engines had never existed before either. We saw that enough engines were going to be turned out to power our shipping fleet. They would have to be built on a mass production method basis instead of one by one. And that's what we're doing now. Well, what's your secret of your success here at Hendy in doing that job? There's no secret to it. It's simply a matter of getting the men and the equipment to do the job, putting them into fast operation and making decisions quickly. Well, you make it sound pretty simple, Mr. Moore. Is all your equipment new? No, some of our equipment was worn out over 50 years ago, but these machines have been rebuilt and are giving a splendid account of themselves. We work on the principle that every machine and every man can do a job for victory. You can tell the world for us, Mr. Baldwin, that the Iron Men of Hendy will turn out the engines to drive the ships to beat the axis faster and faster until victory is ours. And since this great new plant of yours is already turning out half the marine steam engines being built in the United States, 
We know that you and the Iron Men will do it, too, Mr. Moore. Thank you, and keep them coming off the assembly line. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a brief story of American protection in this nation at war from the huge new plant of the Hendy Iron Works near Sunnyvale, California, where modern mass production methods have revolutionized the building of the giant marine engines for our Liberty Fleet. Bill Baldwin speaking. We return you now to New York. <laughs>